This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kathy Rikes, welcome again to Better Reading. Well, thank you for asking me again. It's really lovely having you. Now, we have a new book. It's called Cold Cold Bones, and it's the 21st novel featuring forensic anthropologist Temperance Brennan, who, after receiving a box containing a human eyeball, uncovers a series of gruesome killings, eerily reenacting the most shocking of her prior cases. Do you, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is a crazy question to ask, but when you're writing uh, Temperance books, do you feel that your relationship develops with her? We know each other pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> We've yeah. Together for this. I'm working on book 22 now. So I began the books, you know, 23 years ago. So almost a quarter of a century we've been together. Um, I get I get to know her a little better each book in the sense that something new comes out about her or she's involved in some new case or something new is going on in her relationships. So in that way, I get to know her life story better. That's for sure. Mm. Um, let me introduce you as well. Kathy is an internationally best-selling author whose first novel, Deja Dead, published in 1997, won the Ellis Award for the best first novel. Kathy was also producer of Fox Television's longest-running scripted drama, Bones, which was based on her work as forensic anthropologist and her novels. So the series it was this series called um, about Temperance, wasn't it? Yeah, the new book is a Temperance Brennan book. Yeah. And this TV series Bones is based on that. It's based on the books in part and in part on my my life story. I, I was just looking at all the contracts and what exactly rights did I give to Fox. And partly it was the rights to a book and then partly it was also the rights to my story as, as a scientist, as a person. Well, talk to me about that. How much of yourself do you give away? Well, professionally in, in the books, of course, I, I draw on experiences that I've had and cases that I've worked on. Not always. Some of my books are what I think of as ripped from the headlines where I might get an idea from a headline. We can talk about that if you'd like. But I don't really talk a lot about uh, my personal life. I'm a little more at ease with it now, 23 years down the road than I was back at the beginning because of the nature of my work. Um, I was a little bit closed. I was very closed about mm. giving personal mm. information, especially about my kids or where I lived or anything like that, just because of course I've testified in court and yeah. the defendant is usually not happy with what I, with what I have to say. Mm -mm. I want to talk about, yeah, you talked about getting inspiration and talking about how you draw on your own life. Uh, do you follow crime across the world? Is that, you know, are you interested in true crime as well as crime fiction? Well, I do watch some true crime. Um, I do find it, apparently women are much, <laughs> much more 
fascinated by it than men. I'm not mm. sure. I just read an article about that and they didn't know why that was true either. But yeah, my daughters and I together, it's something we do. My, my kids are all grown now and they have kids of their own. They have six grandkids. So once the grandkids are in bed, we might watch some true crime. So yeah, I'd say it interests me, but that's, that is not where I get my ideas because once something has appeared as a true crime TV show or documentary or whatever, that story's been told. So, yes. yeah. yeah. So mm. I like to, um, I might, something in there might trigger my mind to start thinking some little aspect of it, but I never take an actual story and then convert it into a Temperance Brennan novel. Mm. I'm going to tell you a funny story about true crime books, and I, I only just remembered it while you were talking. Many, many years ago, because I've been working in books and book selling and publishing all my life, almost 40 years now. Many years ago, I was working in a department store in Sydney called Grace Brothers, and I was running the book department. I was the book buyer, and we had a real problem with people stealing books. I mean, the whole store had a problem with theft, but um, particularly in the book department, and it was only the true crime books that they would steal. <laughs> I always thought that was very apt in a way. <laughs> yes, yeah, that is that is funny. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? And in the end, I think we had to move the whole section so it was near the counter so we could keep an eye on it a bit more. But anyway, that was then. I suppose books are small and portable and you can slip them in your pocket, but so's jewellery. <laughs> yeah, but I guess too, they weren't stealing classics. They weren't stealing fiction. They're only stealing true crime. And that's what I thought was funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the thieves were stealing the thieves in a way. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, so when I think about forensic anthropologists, people often say, oh, you know, we only know what's on TV. And that's true. That's true of me. I mean, I guess I only know what is on television. But you've been in that game for a very long time, and I'm sure it has evolved and changed. Can you tell me, firstly, why you got into it, why foren forensic anthropology? And at the time, there mustn't have been many women doing this, and how it has evolved over the years. Yeah, I got into it accidentally, I guess you'd say. Um, when I went to graduate school, um, I was interested in bioarchaeology, in excavating and analyzing ancient skeletons, archaeologically derived skeletons. And I was particularly interested in paleopathology. What kind of diseases did people suffer from? What was life expectancy? You know, was there high childhood mortality? That kind of thing. But 2,000, 5,000 years ago. But because I was the bone, and that was what my dissertation was on, was a prehistoric population, archaeologically recovered. But because I was the bones lady out at the university, forensic anthropology was not, no, most people had never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when you find a skeleton? Well, there's this bones lady out at the university. Maybe she can help us. So cops mm -hmm. started coming to my lab and bringing cases. And once I started doing the forensic work, I really did feel I found it compelling. I love archaeological research. I love it. But it's you know, you're not going to impact anyone's life with it. Whereas when you identify a dead child or a dead family member or testify in court, you are going to impact 
lives. So I liked that. I went back, I retrained, I took my board certification examination, and I've been doing the forensic aspect of anthropology ever since. And it's really fun for me if every now and then, because when human bones are found under the Coroner's Act, at least in the jurisdictions where I've always worked, they have to go to the to the morgue, to the medical examiner or coroner. So it was always fun when something would come in and it would turn out to be very old. It would turn out. And then, you know, I, I would determine that and turn it over to the archaeologist. So those cases were really fun to kind of go back to my roots. Mm. Is there a lot of difference between bones that are buried that are thousands of years versus, say, 30 years or 20 years? It all depends. And, you know, when cops ask me to please estimate how long has this person been dead? Post-mortem yes. interval. Now, it's really hard. There are so many variables that come to bear. Was the body buried? How deep was it buried? How mm. acidic was the soil? What was the access by scavenging animals or necrophagous insects? Was it in? Was there a lot of water involved or was it in a dry climate? So it's extremely variable. I've seen bones that are well-preserved, you know, that are thousands of years old. I've actually held the skull of a the little Tong baby from South Africa, the first Australopithecine that's millions of years old. Wow. In relatively good condition. It was, you know, there was mineral replacement of the bone. And then on the other hand, I've seen bodies that were buried of relatively short time, weeks, that are completely reduced to bone. So yeah. it's it's enormously variable what, what the body is exposed to after death. Yeah. Tell me, I know quite famously you worked with the teams recovering bodies at around the uh, 9-11 time. Tell me how that came about, how it was that it was you and and what that was like. It was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> It yeah. was both physically and emotionally uh, difficult. Yeah, um, It came about because I have, was a member for years of, it's called DMORT, D-M-O-R-T. And that stands for Disorse, Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team. And it's a network of teams throughout the United States that exist permanently, but they're only activated in situations of mass disaster. So... Following 9-11, and usually you work in your own region, like I'm in the southeastern, the nine states of the southeastern part of the United States. But following 9-11, it's whoever could get there because, um, you know, you couldn't get an, a flight. You, you couldn't rent a car. You could, you know, so teams went in from all over the place. So I was deployed through DMORT to work at, they didn't just want any anybody just showing up. Mm. So I was deployed there through the DMORT system. So part of the time at Ground Zero and part of the time out at the landfill on Staten Island where everything was being taken, and you referred to bodies, identifying bodies, I didn't see a single body. It was so fragmentary. It's what we call a DNA event. Um, everything was, we. what we would do is just identify, is it human, tag it, and bag it. And then every day the medical examiner's van would come and collect it. And the identifications went on for years. They still take place every now and then. After that, they were done with DNA. So, yeah, I guess some of it would have been animals or whatever it was well, that, that died. Yeah. There were quite a few animal bones um, because there were restaurants and there were yeah. catering services and things like that in the Twin Towers. So you had to sort out what is human, what is not human. Yeah, wow. 
how is that done? Well, if you haven't, it, it can be tough if you don't have any anatomical markers, but if there's enough on the bone, you can eyeball it, you can look at it, and you can see from the shape of it and the size of it, the cross-section of it. If not, if it's just a really small sample, you might have to take it back and do a thin section, make a microscopic slide and look at it that way. Right. Okay. And now DNA, of course, is much more useful than it was back then. Yeah. Yeah. And does DNA fall under forensic anthropology? We don't really do DNA, most of us, but every case that we analyze now, we collect samples for DNA testing. Those, At least in the labs in which I've worked, you would do that. You would take your samples and then those would go over to, there's a DNA section and it's now those are the biggest sections in most forensic laboratories. So it would go over to the the specialists in DNA analysis because they have all the, the equipment and And do you, because we get our information through books and TV and mainly through fiction, is it that the science has changed and evolved and is it more widely used by police? DNA? No, forensic anthropology. Oh, uh, for yes, yes. I think forensic anthropology, many people had, as I said earlier, many people and most people had probably never heard of it back when I started in the field. Uh, and there were no formal, you ask, how has evolved over the years? There were no formal training programs. You learned your osteology, you know, in, in courses in university and in grad school. But there were no that I can recall, at least when I entered the field, there were no specific courses in forensic anthropology. Mm-hmm. You just had to learn. Mo- many people back then came up through the same route that I did. You were training to do bioarchaeology. You were a specialist in the skeleton. But the skills that are necessary in archaeological analysis are very different from those necessary in, even though you know your bones and you know your your skeleton, it takes a whole other set of skills for the forensic aspect of it, looking at, you know, gunshot wounding. You don't see that in ancient Mm. populations or testifying in court, those kinds of things, or proper protocol for recovery of evidence so that it is um, clear and can be admissible in court. Those are not the kind of skills that that you acquire in archaeological training. And so for then, for an anthropologist like yourself to come to writing fiction, how did that happen? Well, a couple things came together in 1994. I made full professor at the university, so Mm -hmm. I was free to do what I wanted to do. Up until then, you've got to publish and publish and publish scientifically, but once you're full professor, you've you've got a lot more freedom. So I thought it would be fun to write uh, fiction. Also, um, I thought, as I've said repeatedly, nobody had heard of my field back then. So I thought, well, that's a way to through fiction, a way to bring my specialty, my science, to a much broader audience. I had also just worked on a serial murder case in Montreal, Mm -hmm. which involved some very interesting elements uh, to it. And it had been fully, uh, the perpetrator had had been caught and tried and convicted and serving multiple life sentences. So it had been fully litigated. So I didn't use the exact case, but some ideas from that, the idea of a serial killer, the idea of someone who used a unique unique way of dismembering his victims. So all that came together in 94 and on spring break of that. Plus I had three kids all wanting to go to private universities, which are very expensive. 
Mm -hmm. And university professors are not overly well paid. So I thought, well, maybe I can make a little bit of extra money on the side too. So all of that came together. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How did you go about it? Because you can have the idea, right? So you've got the idea. It's based on a case that you've worked on loosely. But putting pen to paper, writing fiction, I'm sure is very, very different to writing uh, science writing that you were doing prior to that. So. How did you go about writing fiction? I just, I decided I wanted to write the kind of book I like to read because I have no training in in creative writing. I avoided literature courses in university. I wanted to be in the science lab, you know, over in zoology and biology and physiology and whatever. So I just decided to, I read a lot of, and I did a lot of deconstructing, I guess, of thrillers, murder mysteries, to see how they worked, how they're put together. I think I got a couple of books on how to write a novel or something like that. (laughs) Um, And then I just... I told myself, you're going to finish this book. You're going to write it. Uh, and I had to write it. And I didn't tell anyone I was writing it because mm-hmm. if you write fiction in a English department, you're a hero. But if you write fiction in a science department, you're a little bit suspect. Right? So I didn't tell anyone I was writing it. My kids knew there was a lot of eye rolling going on. You know, mom's <laughs> working on her novel. <laughs> anyway, so I, it took me two years because I had to write it. Early in the morning, I would get up at six in the morning and write for two hours before going on to campus and on weekends and on holidays and during the summers is when I worked. So it took two years. I just tried to write the kind of book that I would like to read. I I think I was lucky. I recognized early that a mistake I think a lot of scientists and academics make when they try to write fiction is they love their field, whether it's botany or or zoology or oceanography or what, and they put too much of it in. Bird watching. I just read a book recently, a fiction book, and, you know, it was clear that the author liked bird watching. I mean, you know, we only needed a little bit to get a sense of what was going on. Yeah. So you've got to keep it short. You've got to keep it jargon free. That's right. You can't use all this special terminology we use amongst ourselves. And you've got to keep it entertaining. Yeah. So I kept that in my mind, put enough of the science in because I think readers of what would come to be forensic thrillers would like learning that. They would like Mm. 
Most people never visit a morgue. They don't have to go into a crime lab, but they're curious about those Well, places. absolutely. And also it's just like a little window in um, just to see. And back then there wouldn't have even been that much TV that was forensic television as well, you know. So it would be, it would have been such a treat for people interested in that kind of science. It made me, what is the name of that show? There was one show about a coroner. I, I can know. picture the man that played the part. That he was a cor- Jack Klugman, I think, played the part, and it was a corner. Yeah, so you're right. There was very little of that back yes. then. Whereas now, it's obligatory. Every yeah. show, there's you know, there's the morgue, and there's the coroner, and there's the morgue is um, whenever I'm watching any crime, um, I can read it better than I can watch it. But if we go into a morgue, I have to put my hands over my eyes. I can't do that. It's putting them over your nose. Most people have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's if you were there, but I guess <laughs> when I'm watching it at home, thankfully I can't smell anything. So you're right. You really just have to give away enough to to pique that person's interest and keep them going, right? Yeah, and keep it accurate. Be honest yes. with your science. Don't just make things up. And the other thing I, I felt strongly about when I started the book, knowing nothing about writing, is you don't rely on coincidence. You've got to have, re- it's it's okay to have false clues, to have red herrings, but you've got to tie them all off. And you can't rely on coincidence to explain either your main plot line or, um, you know, what these red herring clues were. So I think thriller readers are very sophisticated readers. Mm-hmm. And um, if you- They love detail. They love detail and it's yeah. fair to put in misleads, but you yeah. better explain those. You better explain why those were there. Do you think that you will retire at the same time that Temperance will retire? Do you think that that could be something you would do with her as a fictional character? Yeah. I'm having to think about that a lot lately because yeah. I'm working on book 22, which is the last one for which I'm under contract. So I assume my publisher will present me with another contract if I want one. So I have to decide, do I want to sign for, you know, a couple more books or whatever it is that they propose? But if not, how do I wrap the series or do I not wrap the series? Do I leave it open to the possibility that after a year or two, I'm going to say, yeah, I'd like to write another one. Mm. The authors have done that. Oh, yeah, authors have done that. But do you know why authors have done that? Because readers have demanded it. I see very often um, on the Better Reading Facebook page when somebody retires a character, mainly it could be any genre actually, and people have an opinion about that. You know, where's Temperance? Where's, you know, Jack? You know, I'd like to see Jack back. And and now because we have social media and we have a dialogue between writer and reader, there there could be a bit of pressure. Especially if they kill off their character, didn't who, yeah. who did that? Was it Ian Rankin or someone killed off? Yeah, their, and they, but then brought them back, figured out a way to bring them back you know? <laughs> because the reader was upset. A lot of readers, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that they become engaged with your character in that way, and that's what you know. That's what you want. That's what when I agreed to option the rights to my character to Fox, to the two gentlemen who became our executive producers, it was because we were on the same page about Mm -hmm. the whole concept. We didn't just want to do another police procedural. We wanted to create characters that people would be engaged with and people would care about. And Mm -hmm. apparently we did because the show lasted 12 seasons, which is Mm -hmm. 
phenomenal. So. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. I just want to go back to the, the first book. How then did you navigate the getting it published process? Oh, that's kind of a funny story because, again, I had no idea how to yeah. go about that. I just very You wouldn't have had those connections. No, and it's very no. different from academic publishing. Oh, for sure. When I finished the book, my daughter was dating a gentleman who had a friend who had a friend who was working at a publishing house. Um, and I thought, well, okay, find out, you know, maybe she works in the coffee shop or something. Who knows? Anyway, it <laughs> turned out Mary Sue Rucci, my daughter's boyfriend's friend's friend, um, worked at Scribner. So my daughter and I just composed a cover letter together. And in those days, you sent in hard copy. You sent in mm-hmm. a big honking manuscript. And we packaged it up and we mailed it off to Mary Sue. And I'm sure she was on the other end, having been warned that her friends, friends, boyfriends, <laughs> girlfriends, mother's first novel is coming her way. You know, And she later told me that she took two or three chapters with her from Manhattan, where she was working at Scribner, to her house, her condo, whatever, in Brooklyn or somewhere read them already i'm sure composing the regrets thank you so much but you know good yeah, luck yeah 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 and she yeah. got in the car went back in got the rest of the manuscript wrote read it that weekend handed wow. it up the line and i had an offer within two weeks so the first house to whom i submitted it became my publisher and is to is currently my publisher Oh, wow. That's a fantastic story. I love that. And it is that, you know, I mean, I and I think at the time it just would have been so fresh in its genre. And the fact that it was written by a female. Were you reading any crime at the time? Crime fiction? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I've, I've always read crime fiction. I'm oh, sure yeah. I yeah. would have been. Can I remember? Of course, The Silence of the Lambs. Everyone read The Silence of the Lambs. It was a wonderful mm. book. I've um, never been able to eat fava beans since, though. Right, right. Mm, mm, Turn me off. But, yeah, it's interesting because there wasn't, and I don't know what's happening in the US, and you you might know about this, here there is such a, it's not a resurgence, it's a surgence of crime fiction written by women in Australia. And it was kicked off by a woman called Jane Harper, who you may may have heard of. And it's good crime that we're seeing. You know, it's really well-written crime fiction and people are devouring it. And again, I say readers are so astute. And because we have that direct relationship with them now, they'll ask for more. Well, that's a good thing. That's a good Mm. thing. I'm, Mm. I'm glad they're out there. I'm glad they're interested in it. Back then, did you get letters from readers? How did you um, communicate with readers? You know, I don't, I less so, I'm sure, because there was no social, it yeah. was so far back then, <laughs> there was no social media yet. So every now and then I would get a packet of letters that had been mailed to Scribner, to my publisher. So I would get them in directly. And then eventually, when did we start doing websites and things? Um, yeah, I don't know. But recently really. It's probably longer than we think. but <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Because I just wonder sometimes, um, I know that authors uh, regularly jump onto our Facebook page and, and have a look at reader comments. And I often wonder how useful that is for them. I mean, it's, it's 99% constructive and always um, thought out comments. But yeah, it's a different relationship. I don't read. I know they're, they're out there like on Amazon and sites like that. I don't read 
reviews. I did a little bit at the beginning. And even though they might be overwhelmingly positive, that one or two that were <laughs> really critical were, were devastating. Yeah. They stick with you, don't they? Yeah. 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 Well, they I, the re, my, my reaction to them sticks with me. I don't remember what the review might have said, but I remember <laughs> taking it very much to heart. No, I'm the same. Do you know, sometimes, um, you know, very occasionally we might get a negative review about the podcast or some post I've written or something like that. And I really do take it probably too personally. I have to stop myself from responding, you know. Well, especially when it's not accurate. I do remember yes. one early reviewer of the first book said these cops spend all their time eating donuts. Oh, I don't God. think there was one single donut scene in that book. It's like, <laughs> what? Is that my book you're talking about? That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, do you still love writing? I mean, do you approach it in the same way that you did at the beginning of your career? I have always, I think because of the way I had to write that first book, whenever I had free time, I had to sit down and write. Yeah. And I couldn't waste time and I couldn't make up excuses. So I have a very, um, I'm very regulated. I'm very disciplined. I mm. get up and I sit at the computer and I stay at the computer for now it's not as long as the hours I used to put in. But I I try to get at the computer by about 8, 8.30 and stay with mm-hmm. it till 2, 2.30. Mm-hmm. That's a um, stretch. That's a stretch. And yeah. I don't, I might break and look at email or something in between, but I don't allow, I don't believe in writer's block. I don't mm-hmm. believe in allowing yourself that. I don't mm-hmm. believe it. Well, today the muses are not with me, so I won't write. No. If it's a writing day, you sit there and you write and you produce something. You can all, you're in control of the delete key. You know, the next day, if you don't like it, you can change it. But if you have a blank page, you can't edit a blank page. Mm. So I, I guess I take a, a disciplined, I guess, is the, is the way I approach it. And that that's probably because of the way I started out and had to fit it into those precious few hours that I had for writing. Extraordinary. A wonderful career, um, still going. No doubt I will speak to you sometime next year. Thank you so much for your time today. I always enjoy our chats. Well, thank you so much. I look forward to it all so I can hear my cat again now. He wants his dinner. (laughs) (laughs) He's had enough. Thank you, Kathy. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.